0: Rick Gannon, welcome to the TED Talks podcast. Hi, Ted. Thank you for having me. You are most welcome. I'm glad you're here. You know, I think, I think I read your book before I started following you properly on Facebook and before I joined the group. So I kind of read this book and then I thought, oh, hold on a minute, I'm connected to the author. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then started kind of following what you're doing and and we've kind of you know had the odd chat here and then sort of since then. So. For everyone who, who doesn't know like your history, can you tell us like what was Rick Gannon doing before
1: he got into property? Goodness me, how long have we got for the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. So um well, for those that don't know me or you know haven't read my book or followed me on social media, etc., um I am an ex-police officer, hence the title of my book, House Arrest. So I'm an ex-police officer and um I had a very Life changing moment, a very, um, um, what's, the next, what's the word I'm looking for? Quite a surreal moment. And I was a police officer for many, many years. And I was a, a temporary sergeant. I was in a temporary sergeant's role. And that means that I passed all the exams and etc. cetera. I was just waiting for a position to come up for me. And I was doing relief. So relief sergeant work, if you like, for about probably three years. So I was actually a sergeant for the whole of that time. And part of a sergeant's job in the police force that I was based with at that time was to go and inspect Every sudden death, every every person unfortunately had passed away. It would be up to a sergeant to go and make sure that there were no sus- um, suspicious circumstances, um, and would ha- it was not a very nice job. And we'd have to go and make sure there were no you know sort of puncture wounds and and etc. Just to make sure that that we didn't have a crime scene. Now I'd done this many times before in the past and it wasn't new to me never very nice but I got called to a job and it was in February it was about three o'clock in the morning it was raining it was horrible it was very damp and dismal and my energy levels were quite low that night anyway and I got called to a job where unfortunately this poor gentleman had passed away um, on his couch and he had been there for about two weeks so it wasn't very pleasant. And I did what I had to do. And as you can imagine, my energy levels were just getting worse. They weren't very high at all. It was not a very pleasant job. So I, I did what I needed to do and went through the motions. And I then went home. And I got home just after seven. It was quite an early finish. And I went upstairs to see my daughter, Charlotte. And Charlotte was bouncing around and I said, Hi, are you okay? She was, yeah, just getting ready for school. Daddy, I'm fine. And then I walked into my son's room, Ben, and I said, hi, Ben, how are you? And he said, I'm not so good, Dad. And I said, well, what's the matter? And he said, well, I've been up most of the night wondering why I can't play football like my friends. Because Ben was born prematurely, and unfortunately, he was born with brain damage, and he has a condition called quadriplegic cerebral palsy, which means for Ben, he can't use his legs at all. He's literally got no use out of his legs, so he's permanently wheelchair-bound, and he's very restricted in the movement of his arms. And Tej, that to me was a a real eye-opener and a proper grounding moment. Now, my energy levels were already pretty poor, and they just got worse. And I was almost like time stood still and I just did not know what to say. I didn't know how to answer him because it was sort of, well, I wasn't expecting it. And then it was in just a quite an emotional moment. And I realized at that point that life is short and life is, you know, we only get one shot at this. And and I played this over and over in my mind over the years and you know, without trying to sound cliched that, you know, we are only here once we do only get one chance at this. And I said to Ben, don't worry, it's cool. Um, We'll make it okay for you. Um, We'll make it, you know, we'll make it happen. And Ben at that time was at mainstream school and he was the only disabled child at the school. And, you know, it's almost like he was looking through the window on sports day and, you know, during playtime at everybody else and realising that he wasn't able to do the same things. So we had a bit of a cuddle and a little bit of a cry together. And, you know, it was quite an emotional moment. And I went to speak to my wife, Lorraine, who was downstairs. And I said, look, you know, just had this conversation with Ben. Um, I'm not happy at work. And, you know, I realize now that we need to do something for our family, we need to really try our best to make things happen. And, you know, to make the best out of the situation we have and to look after our kids. I was working shifts, I was on response. So I was I was the the person that would come in the fast car when you dialed 999 with my team behind me and were tasers and what have you. Um, So I was working shifts. So I was away for most of the time. So my kids were um, growing up really, you know, without me being there. So that was another element. So I went to bed and I got up Probably at around eleven. Didn't sleep very well, and the kids had gone off to school. And I spoke to my wife, Lorraine, and and Lorraine said, "Well, why don't we go back into property? Because we've invested in property since nineteen ninety seven as accidental landlords, and we bought a few houses and we sold them for fun and we we flipped them for fun. We never really took it seriously. And so Lorraine said, "Well, you know, property's always been good to us." Um, in the past, so why don't we go back into property full time and make a business from it, make a living from it, which will bring you out of the police and give us time to be able to develop our kids and, and spend more time together? So Lorraine then said, "Well, I've I've been going to a networking meeting, and I was quite aware of that." And she said, "I've been talking to somebody about these things called HMOs, houses in multiple occupation," and she went on to explain the income and and how it would work and. And I immediately put the barriers up again, because in the police, I had lots of experience of HMOs. And my experience of HMOs was to obtain a warrant and then go and knock the door down and arrest people inside for prostitution and drug dealing. And I said, well, why the hell do I want to do that? At least in the police, I can come home and leave it behind. I don't want to be involved in managing that kind of property. But I didn't know at the time, that there was, you know, lots of different tenant demographics you could put into HMOs and not just DSS tenants and, you know, and tenants that we could potentially find it hard to manage. So Lorraine dragged me over to a networking meeting, kicking and screaming. And Ted, you know, when a, when you're a police officer, you really don't trust anybody else unless they are also police officers. And you become very despondent with society sometimes because you're dealing with, all of the negative side of society pretty much all day long. So I got dragged across to a networking meeting and I was just stereotypical. Don't look at me. Don't make eye contact with me. I've got my arms folded. I'm sat down. I've got a scowl on my face and I'm looking at my phone pretending that I'm texting somebody because I was not in the room. I just didn't really want to be there. It wasn't my thing. But very quickly one of the hosts came over to me and he introduced me to somebody else that was at the networking meeting. And bizarrely, this other person was also a police officer. And even more bizarrely, they were stationed at the same station as me, but I didn't know because we worked opposite ends of the shift pattern. So we didn't know each other. But they said, I know, and they said, well, Rick, you know, I'm I'm investing in HMOs and I'm just about to replace my income. Now, that from a fellow officer was enough for me. I trusted cops. Cops were my family. So I said, OK, great. Where do we start? So really, Tedge, from there, um, Lorraine and I forged our HMO business. And, and I don't mind you know, sharing the numbers. I mean, in the first sort of three or four months, um, I, what I did first, I, I took a career break. So it meant that I was still a, I was still a warranted police officer, um, but I wasn't getting paid. But I was still a police officer, still had my warrant card, etc. And um, I was forging my business really hoping that I could make it work. But if it went wrong, I still had that element I could go back to so I could go back and and, and take my job from where I left off. So I worked really hard, really hard. And in the first four months, I replaced my police income. And then I was able to resigned from my job, knowing that I had already replaced my income. And then within, I think it was about six to eight months, I doubled it. And then within 11 months, I quadrupled my police income just from investing in HMOs. And I suppose the moral of that story is that um, during that year, not only did I have more money, but I had more time. So I founded the very first disabled power Share football club for children called Worcester Wizards so that then enabled my son to play football like his friends and he could go off to school on a Monday and tell people he played football too.
0: Wow that's that's an incredibly touching story and I think you know a lot of what we talk about in property is the money that it gives you all the time but we don't necessarily talk about what we're going to do with that money and time and I think it's great for everyone to hear that your why was so strong and so personal and you managed to achieve it, you know, to an extent um, within a certain period of time that, you know, by all you know means is, is pretty quick. Um, yeah. and, and that kind of highlights the power of property and what it can give you more than just, you know, the kind of buzzword of financial freedom. So you said you replaced your police income in the first couple of months. Like, so So what was your police income?
1: Yeah. So, you know, um, when you're in a job and you get paid and you've got nothing to compare it to, you kind of get used to it. And my income as a sergeant in the police, I was bringing home less than £2,000 a month after all my stoppages. Now, um, there is a bit of a caveat to that because I had a pension and the police pension's um, quite substantial. So that gets taken out at source. And I also um, donated a small amount to charity as well. So that got took out at source. But I used to bring home around about £1,800 a month to £2,000 a month. And I was quite happy with that. I thought that was a good income. Um, And obviously, you know, sort of looking back now and the what's expected of you in that public sector role from what they're rewarding you with and selling your time for money. It's actually quite bizarre that I even managed to live off that.
0: (laughs) Wow. I mean, you know, firstly, it's shocking how, you know, like the police don't get paid, in my opinion, enough for the amount of work that you do, like, I'm a big fan of police interceptors so like I I can see the kind of hard work that goes into it and I see it every day and I think it's it's ridiculous um secondly you know to replace that in a few months is is quite something so like how did you do that did you use your own money was it just two HMOs like talk me through kind of those first few months
1: yeah so um It was hard work, Ted, you know, and I'm all, you know, I'm an advocate of sharing all the good with the bad when we talk about HMO property, because, you know, you're always going to have your opposites and you're always going to have your, um, you know, your yin and yang. So, you know, with every good, there is a bad. And I worked harder, I think, over you know, the first, well, over the 12 months, not just the first, you know, two or three months that I'd ever worked before. But I always knew that I'm going to sacrifice probably a little bit more time away from my family to begin with, in order to have more time with them towards the end. So I just went. I just did everything absolutely everything you could think of in order to acquire property obviously all lawful and all you know within um you know w- w- within all the acts that you know we have to follow and all the legislation that we have to adhere to but I just I uh, spent all of my hours sourcing property through every single means and I remember I remember I was sat in my dining room at home and I, I've i been out to um, you know Staples or something and I was pretending to be this big corporate guy now I've left the police and I bought myself a little pen holder and I bought myself you know, a new computer and you know I've got myself a, a diary and a, actually I had a file of facts, would you believe and I've got this file of facts, and I sat there with the phone and I said right here we go and To say that I was – my soul was destroyed within the first week is probably an understatement because, you know, like everybody that starts from nothing, I was literally – Starting from nothing, we had no money, and um, you know we had vi- we had nothing I had virtually no experience, and I was just literally picking up the phone, phoning agents, asking if we could go and view properties, offering on rent to rent, doing absolutely everything that you can imagine and then when i wasn 't doing that, I was out walking the streets, putting postcards in windows, dropping letters in through people 's doors, doing direct to vendor marketing campaigns, visiting agents, taking boxes of chocolate. And it was soul destroying because after about probably three or four weeks of doing this, I had nothing, zero, absolutely nothing. And the and the leads I thought I had, you know, you get excited when a lead comes in, didn't turn into anything. And I I thought I was going to end up back in the police, so I didn't stop and I just carried on doing what I was doing, carried on pushing, carried on sending letters out, and then one campaign alone bought me 17 leads in and I remember the feeling when these leads just kept coming in and they didn't stop and out of those 17 leads I got four deals and those were the first four deals that enabled me to give up my job in the police and then all I did was cookie cut and just do the same again and continued to do it to get to where our portfolio is now I mean obviously now we are in a very very different position than when we started but it's very easy to you know get bogged down with all of the what ifs and i can't do it and oh you know it's just going to be easier if i go back to how i was before but i knew that if i was going to do that then nothing would change and i would always have that regret in my mind you know the what if i had have done it what would my life look like now and my life is very different now than it was before
0: <laughs> yeah wow and so you know those 17 leads was that a direct to vendor campaign
1: yeah, absolutely. All of all of that particular element of from those leads all came from direct to vendor campaigns. But we had everything out there, Ted. We were doing leaflets, we were doing postcards, we were doing newspaper adverts. I was networking my butt off. Even though I didn't like networking, I actually got to enjoy it. I'm a very different person now. And if anybody's ever seen me present, you know, on stage and what have you. I love meeting people now, you know, because I've I flipped my mindset and I know that most people out there are good people, actually not bad people, which I thought they were before. Because if you're surrounded in that environment, you become a part of it very quickly. And um, I, I realized very quickly that, you know, that was the way forward. So we were doing everything and I started to just network everywhere. I started to um, do um, um, go and visit more agents and have chats with agents and I started to feel more comfortable with the things I was saying on the phone and things just got better and better and you know it just got easier and easier for me.
0: Wow and you know I think what what I hear from that is you know you have to work your ass off you have to go through this kind of you know soul-destroying aspect this getting tons of rejections nothing working out things nothing coming back to you out of thousands and thousands of leaflets because you'll end up where you are right now which is in a much much better place but if you quit like some people will do in that stage because it's it's easy to quit because everything's telling you to quit um you know you're not going to get that success in the long term but on the kind of direct to vendor piece what are your like tips for you know people who are right now listening and at that stage that you were at like how should they make their direct to vendor
1: campaigns better you know i'm a a big believer of prolific beats perfection so i think a lot of people just want to get everything absolutely 110% right before they take any action and i think that holds a lot of people back so i'm not it doesn't matter, So I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't matter so much about making sure you've got a first-class stamp on the letter or whether you've got a second-class stamp, whether you put your letters in blue envelopes, yellow envelopes, green envelopes, white envelopes just get them out there and i think a lot of people you know spend too much time and too much of you know um too much of their thoughts in all of that when really you just need to send them out there and um if you do that you've got to make sure that you're consistent and you're prolific and you just keep doing it and keep doing it until you get to the point where you don't need to do it anymore and before all of the people that are listening to the podcast and say you know what everyone's doing landlord letters and it doesn't work anymore. And listen, everyone's doing it because it works. Now, you know, the statistics say that it's about seven touches to a sale, but I think people are, its actually gone up to about 10 touches to a sale now. What does that mean? Well, it means that people aren't going to buy from you straight away. The minute you meet somebody and you try and do a deal with them, well, it's not likely it's going to happen. They don't know you. Then people buy from people and people only buy from people that they trust. And that goes for selling as well so what we do is build up that relationship now that relationship can be built up in lots of different ways um, but the more contacts or touches as we say in sales um, the more contacts that we have with people then the more they get to know you now that could be through direct vendor campaign letters it could be through meeting people at networking events it could be from social media networking which is massive by the way you know people say to me oh you spend more time on Facebook than anything else. But you know what, folks, it's a business. Facebook is a business in itself. And you look at the networking platform that Facebook will give you compared to, you know, perhaps going to small networking meetings. It's massive. So all of these are, are touches. All of these are, you know, introducing yourself and getting to know your customer and vice versa. Because people won't come to you after one letter or two letters. You know, it might be six, seven, eight, nine, ten 11, are you even 12? And it's at the point where it starts to gain momentum when people start to warm towards you and you're building that relationship. So it's about tenacity and about keep pushing forward and just don't give up. Because if you do the same thing tomorrow that you did yesterday, then nothing's going to change. You've got to change those thoughts. Now, did you know that apparently Ted's 95% of the thoughts we have today were the same as yesterday's. Yeah. So we've only got 5% different thoughts. So We need to shift that, change the thoughts, get out of that bubble that we are so comfortable in because it's easy to go back to that as well. But if you go back to it, Nothing will change. So we've got to get into that stretch zone, got to move forwards and just keep doing things differently until we get to where we are. And very, very quickly, that stretch zone will come your comfort zone. And then you've got to stretch yourself again and then get out. You know, And it's like a continuous cycle, really. And the other thing as well, Ted, is that, you know, when people talk about um, the entrepreneurial sort of cycle and the ups and downs and the peaks and troughs, they don't change either. They just get bigger. Those peaks and troughs get bigger as you grow and you just have to manage them. You have to know what to expect. Um, and I kind of like say to lots of people that I talk to, you know, when they say, oh, well, one minute I'm great and it's all going really well. And the next minute this happens and it all goes wrong. That never changes. It just gets bigger and the numbers get bigger. Mm-hmm.
0: Great great answer. A lot a lot of golden nuggets in the, in that piece there. So <laughs> I want to I want to talk about those those first four deals. So obviously getting four deals in your lap, you know, pretty quickly from the time that you've, you know, gone into kind of property properly. Um like what so firstly these are in Worcester, right?
1: Yes, yes. Well, yeah,
0: Worcestershire. Worcestershire. So in terms of the figures, could you talk me through like one of them, just so we kind of understand how it looked for you? And then also tell us how you funded all of them.
1: All of them? Well, all of my deals? Uh, No,
0: those first four.
1: Oh, right. Okay. Oh, gosh, no, that's on the spot. Don't have the figures in front of me, but I can um, can give you a synopsis of um, our first four deals. Um, so the very, very first HMO that we did. Now, we've got Article 4 now in Worcester. And we've also got additional licensing. So we've kind of got everything slapped on us. But before all of that happened, we got into the market probably about a year prior to all of that um, taking place. So we were quite fortunate. And my very first deal was sourced from Zoopla. Was it right move? It was one of them. At least probably on both of them. And, you know, what we were doing is using every element of um, of sourcing and marketing that we could, including all of the platforms online. And we saw this property and we went on to um, Rightmove and Zoopla and we saw that it'd been on and off the market and the price had fluctuated over about 12 months. So we were kind of thinking it looked like the seller was motivated because, you know, he was sort of reducing the price quite a lot. So we went to look at this property and it was right in front of Worcester um City football clubs ground so it wasn't in the best location but it was a big house it was already a five bedroom because they'd done a loft conversion there weren't massive rooms and had a big driveway lots of parking so it kind of ticked all of the boxes and we could convert this under permitted development into a six bed because we didn't have article four so um we put an offer in i think it was one hundred and seventy seven thousand pounds and they said yes straight away and I was ecstatic. I was really pleased that, you know, all of a sudden we put an offer in, things were about to start moving forwards. But then I got a phone call back about an hour later from the agent and said, "Oh, can you send proof of funds over?" And I was like, "Proof of what? <laughs> proof of what? Proof proof of funds? What, what, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, we need to, you know, to see if you're procedable. Can you send proof of funds?" I was like, "Okay." So I put the phone down and all of that excitement just got whipped away from me completely because we had no money. And, uh, you know, we were putting offers in and things. And, of course, you know, I panicked Then I was like, oh, my God, we're going to find proof of funds. So fortunately for us, um, we did everything that everybody, you know, sort of tells you to do now and tell everybody what you do. And we were talking to a family member and we went out for a curry and over about six or seven Cobras and a madras, I managed to get my first joint venture partner, who was a family member. And um, he had just retired and had a lump sum of around about 80,000 pounds, strangely, because that's exactly what we needed. Um, and he said, OK, we'll I'll tell you what we'll do then. Um, we will go into business together and we'll do it together on a joint venture. And I said, "Cool." And we kind of wrote terms down on the back of a beer mat, um, and then wobbled off home to sleep our curry and beer off. Um, and and over the like, you know, a couple of weeks, and we managed to do it. So he gave me the proof of funds, and all of this happened as well, Tedge, Before all of the clause 24 tax issues were coming in, so we didn't have any of those issues. So we just did it as sole traders, you know, as as partners, and we bought this property together. Now the deal was, he gave us all the money, and I managed the property and manage the tenants and then we would split everything 50 50 including the equity so that's what we did so that was our first HMO so all of a sudden things were moving we got the building team in we did the conversion I was advertising the property before it was finished and it was literally we had a couple come from France who moved over to the UK and they were literally without a word of a lie they were moving in the front door as the builders were still clearing all the stuff out the kitchen out the back it was that i mean it literally i was i was really stressed it was probably the most stressful um time of property for me because it was my first one i wanted to get it all you know bang on so we filled that property really easy and we were splitting about i think it was about 480 pounds a month each in profit so out of thin air I created this income of £480. Now, that was a considerable amount of money to me then, um, bearing in mind I was only earning £1,800 a month, and my joint venture partner was getting the same. So that equated to him, I think it was about a 7.8% return on investment. Now, it doesn't sound massive to a professional property investor, but bearing in mind all of this money was getting him about 0.5% in the bank at that time. So he was over the moon and he was getting 400 pounds a month in his pocket or just over. Now, the great thing was um, he didn't want his money out straight away, but he did want it out at some point. About 18 months ish later, Worcester city football club were relegated and they sold their ground to a developer and they redeveloped the whole area and put four and five bedroom houses and apartments on the ground. So, We refinanced that property about 18 months later for 260 something thousand, which meant that my joint venture partner got all of his money back, every penny. And we had about £10,000 on top to split. And because the rents have gone up over the years as well, we still make about £450 a month each from that property and it cost us zero. So that is a great example of a, a no money left in deal. So that property for us now is an infinite return on investment so we thought you know what this works this is awesome all we need to do is go and do this again so of course my joint venture partner has said well hey I've still got this 80 grand in the bank I'm still only getting 0.5 percent interest how about we do the same thing again so we went off and carried on doing deals like that but that wasn't so that was my first deal so awesome deal for both of us Um, still one of our best properties it's in a great location now and works really really well my second deal and my third and fourth were deals that I did myself, and they were all either lease options or rent-to-rents. So my second deal came, again, from landlord letters, and it was a property that was already being run as a HMO. Um, so it was a lot less um, ingoings, and that was fortunate because it was a rent-to-rent. And the owner approached me and said, well, we bought this property in and t- uh, uh, 2007 2008 right at the peak of the market um unfortunately it's in negative equity by about 10000 pounds and um we've been renting it to a charity that house uh young offenders that have come out of prison and then they're in a transitional phase before they are completely released back into society for themselves to fend for themselves and even though it was with a charity the landlord was getting lots and lots of complaints from the neighbors and he was he was at the end of his tether he didn't want to do any more in fact his wife um, didn't even want to go to the property because it was that bad for her mentally she just had really bad experiences every time she went there so i offered to buy the property to begin with and hope you know my joint venture partner would come in on the deal and he said well he couldn't sell it at the market value or what we perceived as market value at the time, because he would have to pay the bank about £10,000. So I said, okay, well, how about we do um, something that um, will, will help you get that money back? So I could agree to purchase the property in five years at an agreed price that we can set now and if that's acceptable for you, um, I can rent it in the meantime. So what we know is a lease option, but I didn't use the terminology to him because I didn't want to confuse him. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. So what you're saying is that you could give me potentially more in about five years, and that means that I will walk away in five years with profit rather than being in neg- negative equity. And in the meantime, you'll rent it off me, take away all the responsibility, and I'll have a passive income. And I said, yep. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. He said, that sounds like a great deal. Let me go and have a chat with my wife. And about two days later, he came back. He said, I've chatted with my wife and uh, no. (laughs) And I said, oh, right. I wasn't expecting that. Okay. I said, well, what is it that you're not happy with? He said, well, you know, we don't know what the market's going to do in five years time, you know, and if it goes up really significantly, we're going to lose out a lot of money. Um, I said, okay, well, I understand that. So how about then we do a similar deal But what we will do is we will give you another 25% of the uplift of of the value of the property at that time. So if the property is valued really highly, you get another 25% on top. And he said, that sounds like a really fair deal. Let me go and have a chat with my wife. And he came back two days later and said, no. (laughs) So this went on for a while, Ted. So um, I I said, OK, well, look. How about we split it 50-50? So, if there's any uplift and if the property is worth considerably more than the offer we give you, we'll split that 50-50. And he said, You know what? I'm not even going to go and ask my wife this time. I'm just going to presume that she's going to say no. So, we're not really interested, but thanks very much. So, just before um, we put the phone down, because this was over the phone, I said, Okay, wait, wait, wait. How about I just rent it off you? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, literally that. What about if I lock in with you a five-year deal? I would guarantee the rent from you. You can walk away, and then you get all of your house back in five years, and you can choose to sell it, keep all of the money, do what you like. He said, that is a deal. He said, I don't even need to ask my wife. So... We negotiated that over about three weeks and that became our very first rent to rent. And, and, you know, he was very skeptical. He'd, he'd been bitten a lot in the past and he'd just make, he just made, he was quite nervous, but we did the deal. Um, it didn't cost me anything because the property was already HMO. It was already furnished. Um, it was already decorated. We literally just had to get the contracts drawn up, um, which we did. Um but, you know, going back then, I think we probably acquired the contracts. Now, we don't we don't advocate that, you know, contracts should be written legally and it should be between both parties because, you know, every deal is different. But back then I was starting, things were different. <laughs> um, so we negotiated it, got the contracts drawn up. And within about four weeks, we were in. Um, and very quickly, the property started to fill, you know, almost to the point where, um I could have probably charged a lot more for the rooms. So we were paying the landlord £1,000 a month on that property, guaranteed for the lifetime of the deal. And I, uh, the property was making me about 700 in profit. So that was my next deal. So I just made over £1,000 a month between two properties, and neither of them cost me anything. And I was hungry now, Ted. I was really out there looking for deals. Um, so that was just to me, you know what? This works. And I remember on um, – because we take our rents on the first of the month, and I've always done that. And I remember on the 31st of whatever month it was, I sat up all night Just with my mobile banking app, watching the rents drop in um, because I was so nervous I wasn't going to get paid because I thought something's going to go wrong. You know, this can't be this easy. And I was watching the rents drop in and it was just an amazing feeling. So that's my second deal. Uh, My third deal was um, another. Well, it started off. um, It was advertised as a, a sale. And it was in a great location in Worcester. It was right, literally right next door to the train station. And we went to view it. It was on again with an agent. So this was with the local agent. And this came about from me going into the agencies every week and making sure that we got the first dibs and surely enough we got contacted by an agent he said it's just come on the market now are you interested it will make a great hmo and they can say that then because we didn't have article four so i uh, went along with my wife lorraine had a look at the property and um, the vendor was there and this property just sang to me and what he'd done he'd used it as a care home he used to foster children himself with his wife and um his wife unfortunately passed away and I could just feel the energy in that house. We went into the back garden and there were little seashell ornaments hanging from the trees that the kids had made. And you could just see that there was so much love in that house. There was so much energy. And it was just a very bizarre feeling. Never had that feeling before. And we said to him, well, what are you looking to achieve? And he said, well, he's unencumbered. There, were no, there was no mortgage on the property. And um, he wanted to go and live by the coast. The property Had too many memories for him and he needed to walk away, but he didn't need the money right away. And he said that to us. So we went on to say, Well, what you know, we're not in a position to buy right now. Um, We are building our portfolio, we are relatively new. To to, you know, our business is relatively fresh and but we are going to be honest and transparent with you. You know, we've got loads of drive, loads of vision. So if we rented it from you, would you be prepared to sell it to us at a fixed price at some point in the future? And he said, you know what? You know, thanks for being so honest. And because of that, yes, we can do a deal. Now, this was a five bedroom. Well, it still is a five bedroom HMO. And he only wanted £500 a month in rent. And that was like, whoa, that was half of what we could have afforded to pay. But he wouldn't take any more. And he he kept saying that, you know, I've bought into you guys. I love your honesty. I love that you haven't tried to blag me by saying that you've got loads of houses. Um, So we did a deal with him. And we took it on an 18-month option because that's all he would do. And we did a conversion. This one did cost us £10,000 we had to put in, which we borrowed from an investor, a private investor, um, where we paid a fixed rate return. We did the property up to standards, got it licensed, filled it again straight away. And then we operated it for 12 months. And on the 12-month point, um, and this was, sorry, the the profit on this one was really high. It was about £1,200 a month because of the rent. So I just, like, you know, created uh, the first three properties, you know, almost um, over what I was earning before. So we bought it um, 18 months later. And... We bought it again with our joint venture partner because we just financed our first property, got the money out of that, as you know, because I just mentioned it. And we put that into the, um, this property here. So we bought it and that was our first lease option purchase that we actually completed on. And um, and those were our first three deals. And then the fourth one, fourth one is very different because, again, this one came from landlord letters. I say again, this is the first one, I think, of these examples. Came from landlord letters and it was a converted pub. And it was a 12-bedroom property, right bang in the middle of the city centre, right opposite the busiest nightclub in Worcester, and it had single-glazed sash windows and it had everything wrong about it. So I went to view it, didn't really like it. And the story was the, the landlord was motivated because he'd, he'd bought the property as an investment. He wasn't really a landlord himself. He rented, uh, no, he didn't. He gave the property to an, an agent to look after. Um, the agent was only targeting students and he missed the student market. So he had about Uh, four of the rooms occupied and the rest of them were void they were empty and they were brand new they'd all been converted and they were all en suite so he came up to me and asked me if i was interested i had lots of reservations we didn't do the deal overnight it took about three weeks because i made him an offer he said no and again came he came back to me about four weeks later and said look i've still not um, um sold these rooms are you interested so we did a deal this was another no money down deal, Ted. It was a five-year lease option. I didn't need the agreements because I already had them. And I uh, didn't need any money putting into the property. We didn't need any deposit or anything that was ready to go. So I took it on a month and a half rent-free, just so I could make sure I could fill the rooms. And we did a deal. Now, I pay him two and and a half. I've still got this because we've, renew, we've renewed it for another five years. Um, I pay him two and a half thousand pounds a month. And it profits me about £1,400 a month net. Um, And that was from thin air again, £1,400 a month from one property. Now, I've forgotten now, I've lost count on where we got to with the income. But you'll see by now, the first four deals, I'd more than replaced my police salary from a start, you know, a standing start with no cash in the bank whatsoever. And after about two months, that landlord... Came back to me and said, "I'm really happy. I've also got another property I hadn't told you about. It's got eight bedrooms. Would you like that as well?" And so the story goes, and we just carried on growing from that point.
0: Wow! You know, I think you know if you can do that, then anyone can, right? Anyone listening can replicate what you've done. Go hell for leather and achieve this in the same time frame, maybe quicker. There's a challenge for anyone listening. Um, but you know, you have, you know, created and you know by the sounds of it if I do the rough maths in my head enough income for a lot of people to be you know quite comfortable on and maybe even stop buying more properties if that was their kind of vision or dream or they want to go travel the world or open a farm or you know whatever it is so Mm. you've done that so quickly and I think that there's so much in there that you've kind of touched on that's going to be so useful for the listeners but you know being honest being confident like got you these deals being someone who delivers on what you say you're going to do has opened up more doors for you so for me those two are uh, alongside many of the lessons you've given there are so so important when people are new it's quite easy to kind of think oh you know what let me just blag it say i've got three hmos already get some pictures off the internet just you know you don't need to do that if you kind of do it like rick did it you'll get the success that you're having. So, if we fast forward to today, and we are in March 2019, what does your portfolio look like now?
1: <laughs> it's really strange because we've got a bit of everything now. So, we have got about four and a half million pounds worth of houses now of our own, um, and we've got about 120 tenants. We cash flow about forty thousand pounds a month in rent from HMOs alone. And, and we're kind of comfortable with that. You know, we don't really want or need that many more houses. We don't want to be super duper landlords. You know, we don't want five, 600 tenants. We've got a sweet spot because very quickly you become your own worst enemy. You become your own. Um, you start competing against yourself in terms of selling rooms. But, you know, to come from where we've got to, our last deal we bought um, from landlord letters for 1.1 million. That's uh, so what we paid for it. Um, we bought it. In, we just bought it, you know, um, with m- m- traditional mortgages because we're in a very different position now. We we can afford to do that, and I don't mind saying, Ted, that we've just refinanced all of that deal back out after owning it now for about 18 months, two years, for 1.75 million. Um, so we've got, I know, we've got all of the money back out of that deal. Um, so we've got 28 units there over. It's a whole street. Some people may have seen it. I do post it on Facebook um, for free. You know, so you know, we bought a property for 1.1 $1. $1 million that didn't cost us anything in the end. We had to put money down to begin with. I understand that, um, but now we've refinanced that cash out. So that's what we do now. You know, we we are in the bigger deal camp now, really. So we kind of look for deals at 700 thousand upwards, towards 1.1 $1. $1 million, $1. $1 million $1. 1.5 million, that kind of thing. So in a very different position. Um, but of course, now things are different. You know, I'm sat here talking to you um, from the from the flip side, and. You know, when we talk about mindset and if I'd have not gone over that, if I hadn't done that deal on the first one and if I'd have gone, you know, given up when I was sat in the dining room on the phone thinking, you know, this isn't going to work. And to where I am now, um, you know, it's, things are very different in terms of, you know, I mean, I, I write for all of the national magazines every month. I write for the Birmingham um, business posts. Um I, you know, I was on Sky Television last June for the whole month of June um, on the property um, on, as an expert property advisor on the panel. Um, you know, a couple of best-selling books out there, podcasts like yourself, um, you know, and, and a massive following on on social media. And it's very different now. But if I hadn't have done that, I would just be Rick Gannon, the sergeant in the police, working towards getting my pension at fifty-five, and just living that, you know, mediocre lifestyle.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, so two questions, that £40,000 a month, is that profit or is that...
1: No, no, that's gross. So in terms of, it's hard for me to work out the profit off the cuff, but I would say that probably... Just less than 50% of that is profit. So about 45%. So, you know, probably about 18,000, 19,000, something like that. We've got a lot of overheads, Ted. We've got 10 staff now. You know, we've got big offices. Um, So our overheads are a lot more than they ever used to be. Um, But, you know, um, that's because I choose to do it that way. They could be a lot stronger. You know, if I chose to just have a couple of staff or maybe just one, um, then that would be a lot stronger. But no, that is gross. Um, But even, you know, after all the overheads are taken out, still a very good strong income
0: no yeah i mean for sure yeah and then on that property you bought for 1.1 million did you say essentially was a whole street was it a portfolio on a whole street like what what was the deal
1: it was well years ago it was an old school Um, And then over the years, it had been converted into uh, 28 HMO rooms. So yes, it was the whole street bar one house. So there's one house at the end that we didn't own, which has since come on the market, but we're not going to buy it because they want too much for it. And I'm not that vain to buy a house just so I can say I've got literally every house on the street um, just to make it work because the property is just too expensive. So it comprises of um, a six-bedroom property Another six bedroom property and then two properties knocked together, which is actually an 18 bedroom property. So when we bought it, um, it's listed as well, which was a bit of an issue. We bought it um, fully occupied and it was um, it was a, a section two, three, um, section two, five, seven HMO. So it was, although they were HMO rooms, they were double HMO rooms. So each each room had another room. So they could have a living room and a bedroom. They were all um, had fitted kitchens in, but none of them had bathrooms. All the bathrooms were shared. So it was still a HMO um, property, the whole lot. So what we did, we got listed builder consent um, to go in and gave us permission to start making changes as well as full planning consent to turn the 28 rooms into 25 individual flats self-contained. And by doing that, we managed to get bricks and mortar valuation because sometimes people talk about commercial valuations and everybody strives to get towards commercial, when in fact bricks and mortar valuation for us was higher on this because each individual flat was valued in its own right. So what we did was we did the conversion um, over about 12 to 18 months we reduced the size from 28 rooms to 25 flats but each flat were valued you know the flats were valued at different prices because of the sizes but between 700 and 750000 each that would be nice between 75000 to upwards to 100000 per flat um and by doing it that way we managed to get a massive valuation on the property and we got our money back out. So if we'd have done it on a commercial valuation, it wouldn't have been as high and we wouldn't have drawn our money back out. So when we talk about commercial valves against bricks and mortar valves, sometimes bricks and mortar can be in your favor and it certainly was for us there. So it's still occupied, um, still fully occupied. The rents, have a lot to do with the valuation as well, um, because we did manage to put the rents up considerably, because when we bought them, the landlord had had the property for years, most of the tenants have been in there for 15 years or so, and all of the rents remained what they were paying 15 years ago. So we did, we did have to put the rents up, not because we're being greedy, but because we want market value, of course. So we did, we put the rents up and the tenants stayed because they knew they were still getting great value. So the property cash flows at 10,000 pounds a month, um and net about five. Wow, what a deal. And how, how did you find that deal? Direct to vendor landlord letters.
0: Uh, okay, so they do work for the people yeah, saying they that they do. work, they don't. There's the kind of proof. So, you know, I know you said things are different now and you can you can afford to work on these bigger projects, but from your journey from those first four to, to where you are now, you know, I assume you've worked with investors. How did you find investors to fund your deals
1: it's a great question and um we do have a very small pocket of investors now we've been very fortunate that we've managed to get a lot of rent to rent and lease options along our journey and we've managed to start saving money Um, and then we've bought properties and we've managed to refinance them so we've we've been very savvy with what we've done and how we've done it Um, so but we do have a very small pocket of investors so initially um the family member who is still with us. And then we've had probably three or four outside investors as cash-only investors that have lent us money on a a fixed-rate return. And we've paid them back uh, over a period of 12 months or two years. And we've used that money to go and, you know, do refurbishments on properties that we've bought because we can't use that money really to buy properties a little bit too complicated. And um, then we've got our main investor who is in the project that I just mentioned um, as a a, a partner, as a proper partner with, you know, shares and, and what have you. So... How do we get them? So from our, our, our investors, I've come all from our community. So from our networking, and I always say this to people when they're starting, there's lots of things you can do. And we kind of need to put them into two different categories. So we've got A tasks and we've got B tasks. Your A tasks are the tasks that will make you money. Those are the tasks that if you do every day, you will make money. And then the B tasks are the tasks that are not really that important, but you think they are but they're not going to make you any money. So the the back-end stuff, like your business cards, is it really that important that you have a business card in this day and age? Is it really going to make you any money? Now, I know that you need to to show people who you are and how they can contact you, but is it really that important right now? So you want to filter all of your A-tasks together, and if you concentrate 80% of your time on your A-tasks, you'll double your income. So we did that. And part of our A task was to grow our community and to network. So we went out there uh, and say we myself and my wife and we networked as much as we could. We put ourselves out there as much as we could. I started to do posts on Facebook as much as I could. And I then realized that Um, I had started to collate quite a lot of knowledge and being in the police, I am very sort of um, uh, legislation orientated and I kind of enjoy the legislation side of things. So I started to gain all of that knowledge um, and I started then to go and speak around the circuit. Um, you know, in other people's networking events on how I obtained my first four houses and my first five houses and that kind of grew. And then I thought, you know, I need to get my own Facebook group, you know, why would I go and post on somebody else's when I can create my own? And back, you know, when I started my Facebook group, the Facebook market wasn't quite, quite as crowded as it is now, perhaps. And there weren't that many property groups um, going. So I started one, uh, which grew to what it is today. You know, it's a phenomenal, Uh, Facebook group with over um, 24,000 comments a month that's 800 a day which is just I know it's nuts I mean it is a full-time job really to just managing that but growing that community has formed our network that is our network and to answer your question um, as quite a long-winded answer but it's quite important is um, all of our uh, investors now, I say all of them we don't have that many. we have a handful less than five, and but those are investors that keep coming back with us and keep working with us because they can trust us, and we don't need any more than five because you know we can self fund um, because we are in a very very different position now than we used to be so um Yeah, networking, really important. Get yourselves out there. Tell everybody what you do. Network, 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 and be confident and just keep pushing yourself forward because, you know, people buy from people and if they know that um, you're keen and, and honest and transparent, and that's the other aspect as well is honesty. You know, I'm not one for blagging things. I don't want to stand in front of people and tell them things that, aren't true because very quickly you'll be found out and then you'll lose all of your credibility. So be honest with people. And if you're only starting out, tell them you're only starting out. That's what I did. I said, you know, in my first few rent to rents, look, you know, we've not got a massive portfolio. We've got a bit of experience. We played with it for a little bit years ago. Um, But in terms of HMOs, we're quite new to this, but you know, we're here, we're keen, we're honest um, and we'll do our best for you type of thing. And people will buy into that honesty and mm. um, you know more than anything in my experience, anyway.
0: Yeah, and you know you you have obviously a lot of HMOs in your portfolio. And like one thing that I guess with new investors, um, and when you're kind of maybe looking at a new area, like geographically, if you know if you live in London, you want to buy, you want to I don't know look at the Midlands, for example. How how does one know if you know this area within a town is going to be good for HMOs? And then when you also see competition in that area you know should that put you off or should it encourage you or you know how do you how do you just know this area is going to work as a HMO and you're not going to waste tens of thousands of pounds refurbing something and then it's empty
1: yeah so competition is a good thing so if I would be more concerned if there was nobody in that area because that would tell me more stories um because if there was you know why not because you know HMOs are popular so the thing there's a word that's banded around social media groups quite a lot called saturation. And I call it the S word, the dirty S word. Um, and I think, you know, there is there is always room in a crowded market. Now, I'm going to give you some examples here, Ted. So, you know, we look at current at the moment. You've got the, the, um, the two phone providers that are out there right now that really control the market. So you've got Samsung and you've got Apple. Then all of a sudden you've got this new guy that comes along with Huawei, and taking on the biggest players, marketing, you know, while we, you know, it's only really just started to come out there. And they're not scared of going head to head with the big boys like Apple didn't when it was BlackBerry back in the day. You know, BlackBerry was the, um, the the scene and Nokia, the scene to have phones. So there's always room in a crowded market, provided you've got your product right and you've done your research. So what you can't do is go you know bounding into an area and just starting you've got to do your due diligence and you've got to see and make sure that it will work and I think, you know, largely this is test and measure. So first of all, you need to have a look and see what other people are doing. Um, You know, choose an area that is relatively close to where you live, relatively close so you can get there quickly in case you have to. Because to begin with, you know, you're going to be doing most of this yourself until you put your team together. Um, So it is going to be hard work. So you need to find out that, you know, the property is probably less than an hour away from where you are. And then look at what everybody else is doing. Go onto the internet have a look on um, Gumtree and have a look on Spareroom.co.uk and all of those, you know, you pad and just see what everybody else is doing. Now you're not really going to get a good gauge of supply versus demand from any of those websites because the, the figures are kind of flawed. Sometimes people put dummy ads on there, which I'm not a lover of. And sometimes um, potential tenants will leave their profile up there when they've already got a room. So you know, you can have a look at that, but it's not really going to give you a great idea of what the supply versus demand is like. I think the best way to do that, Ted, is to literally talk to the people on the coalface on the ground that are doing it. Now, you can ask other investors. I would be wary of that as well, because if see, people see you as competition, they might tell you that the the area is rubbish, you know, because they don't want you competing against them. So go to the agents, go to the agents and go to as many as you can and say, hey, You know what, I'm Rick Gannon, and I'm looking to invest in the area. And when I do, I'd like you to manage it for me. But before I do, I'd like to know a few things. What's the market like? You know, what's the turnaround like? What's the churn churn rate like in your HMOs? You know, what's the – how many uh, viewings versus – conversions are you getting to so get all of that information from the people that are actively out there doing it and the people that want to help you succeed because the agents will want your business they're going to tell you warts and all but don't just get one person's advice go down the agency strip as you, you know we call it the strip because most of the state agents are in the same road and and go and ask them all and take a view on, on everything that they've told you and work out for yourself then whether you think there's a strong demand or not and that's the best advice I can give for that, Tedge, because, you know, we've got to go and talk to the people that are experienced in actually doing it themselves. An agent will tell you that because if they want your business, they're going to tell you, um, you know, what the what it's like. But don't just take one. Go and ask all of them and then get a rough average of what it's um, of what the area is doing. And then, you know, be better. Just be better. There's lots of great things. I mean, you know, again, there's, you know, there's all, ever since I've been doing this, the saturation word has been out there. It's never changed. And markets fluctuate and there are lots of people doing HMOs, but guess what? There are lots of tenants out there as well that want to rent from HMOs for lots of reasons that either can't afford to get on the housing ladder or they simply don't want to because they like the flexibility of being able to move around when they choose to. So all of that coupled together with a great service, And a great product will put people to the top of the pack. And again, this goes out to people that I keep picking on social media a little bit, but people will say, oh, the market's saturated. My rooms have been empty now for four weeks or five weeks or six weeks. And I'll say, well, let's try and help you with that. Can you send me a link to your advert? And they send me a link to their advert. And it looks like it's never been decorated since 1972. (laughs) Uh, And the advert is, you know, it's a a photograph of an unmade bed. Uh, maybe a divan bed that's all tatty, and the curtains aren't closed, and and it's not, it's just awful. So just be better than everybody else. And you know, those adverts are still out there on Facebook, on um, spare room now. I've been looking at them this week, in fact, and there's still loads of those. Get your photos professionally taken so i know that some people like to use their iphones and they think they're taking great photos but you won't be able to compare unless you compare them against a professional portfolio photos so every property you have get your photos professionally taken and you've got them then for life it's an asset and you can use those moving forward so a few tips there. i could go on but i know we've only got a 45 minute (laughs) podcast but um you know Get out there, just do it. Make sure you do it better than everybody else. Be confident and have confidence in your brand, and you can make this work. Awesome. And what
0: are your thoughts on the market in Worcester and Worcestershire in, on, in general? That was terrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you don't want to invest in Worcester. It's awful.
0: <laughs> cool. I will. I will take that. Um, avoid Worcester, everyone. Um, now, this question. I think may lead us to talking about something that you have developed yourself, but what, you know, is there a resource platform or app that you can't live without?
1: Okay. Well, thank you for a nice lead in Tej. Is it okay if I do a little bit of a, um, a a rewind again on this, just to sort of um, tell everybody how we got to where we are now in terms of what systems we use? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, going back to probably my fifth or sixth rent-to-rent, which I haven't mentioned um, today. And again, at that point, I said I was working really hard. And I was um, at the property and doing everything that everybody told you not to do. So, it was half-term. I had my kids with me in the property. I had my my dogs with me. My wife was with me. The kids were chucking KFC wings at each other, trying to kill each other. The dogs were trying to um, get out of the window at the next door neighbor's cat. And it was just bedlam. And I was up a ladder. I had a cheese sandwich in one hand. And I had my magnolia, yes, it was magnolia, paintbrush in the other. And we were decorating this property uh, on a rent-to-rent that we'd just taken over. And my phone was ringing because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was advertising the rooms for the property that wasn't ready yet. But I knew that I could sell it. So I was advertising the rooms. And my phone was ringing continually. Sometimes I took the call. Sometimes I didn't. And the ones that I didn't, um, they were all prospects for tenants that wanted to move into that property. And it quickly dawned on me that I was losing... Loads of potential prospects, and I didn't have a system. I had nothing. I was still using like a file of fax. I mean, I remember that file of fax. I don't even know if you can still get a file of fax, but I was using a file of fax at the time when I decided to. And I thought, you know what, I need. I need something that I can electronically sync to a diary on my computer that takes me out of the picture and then people can just book online because I was very conscious of of losing all of these bookings and all of these um, potential tenants. So I went back and I, re- I researched the market to see what was out there. And I was quite, I was, I suppose I really, I was, I had a very good vision in my mind. I didn't just want something that linked with my diary. I wanted something that I could pre-qualify the tenant with. So I wanted something that um, I could ask the tenant questions before they got to the viewing so I could pre-qualify them to see whether or not they were actually worth showing the house in the first place because nobody ever did that. And I thought, well, why don't people do the due diligence at the beginning rather than at the end? Because surely if they're not worth showing the room, then they're not worth showing the room and we can save all of that time and effort. So I wanted something that would do that. And I also wanted something that enabled me to go paperless and something that wasn't messing about with application forms back into and reservation forms back into and and what have you. So um, I went to research the market and there was nothing that did all of that. There were systems that did bits of it, but nothing that did all of it together. So I decided to create my own. And over a period of six months, I found some third party applications, they weren't mine and I managed to link them in together through APIs and stuff bearing in mind I'm not a coder I'm, I'm an ex-cop but all of a sudden I started to create this system that worked I didn't own it, it wasn't mine it was um, lots of different systems and they were all pieced together but it actually worked and how it worked was if a tenant made a contact with me on Spare Room, I would send him a link and that link would send them to my diary booking page and they would book a viewing with me at a property of their choice, which linked to my Google Diary, which meant that I bypassed the system. And I, and they couldn't book any viewings that weren't uh, available. So they were grayed out. So I didn't have to do anything. It was perfect. And then as soon as they booked, they got a text message with all of the, um, the address and all the necessary information. And then they were led to a form they had to complete, which asked them 13 pre-qualifying questions. And you know, those were things like, have you ever been evicted? Have you ever been made bankrupt? Do you have a criminal record? All the things that would prevent them from getting a tenancy with me. And once they completed that, I got an email to say that they completed it. And I went through the form online to see if they were suitable or not. And if they were, then we carried on through the process. The system then went to the property. If they wanted to view the room, oh, before that, sorry, they get a reminder text message to ask them, um, to confirm, and if they didn't confirm, then we wouldn't go. So we we cut out all of the, the wasted no-shows as well at the same time. So it was working perfectly. It was a bit clunky, but it was working great. And then we got to the property, and if they wanted to take the room, we sent them a link, and then they could complete the application form online. And then as soon as the application form was completed, we'd have to go to another platform, and we'd have to go and send the contracts to them. And that was kind of what we wanted to achieve, and we did. So. We, I ran that for and I only did it for me because I wanted to make sure that I was systemized. And I ran that system for about three years, maybe a bit longer, maybe four years. And I was um, speaking at a conference in London, um, a HMO conference over three days in front of about I don't know it was about a thousand people maybe I can't remember exactly and I mentioned the system that I created to streamline my business and it caused so much interest that I was literally stampeded in the bar um <laughs> over lunch and people say oh tell me about it I want it I want it and I was like well I can't you know there's too many of you how about I put a day on and we do a course and that led into what I used to do called the Um, The Tenant Systems Day. Uh, And I I trained about 400 landlords on that system. And after one course, it was probably about a week later, I got a phone call um, from some of the delegates. And they said, well, Rick, we've just been on your systems day. And to be honest, we're not really looking into the system. We're not really that interested. But we are international software developers. And we think that we can help you make this better and something that you can own. Can you come and have a meeting with us? And long story short, over a period of two years, myself and my awesome business partners coded and wrote what we now know as GoTenant. And GoTenant is everything that I've just mentioned, but it's all under one platform. And it's, it's supercharged, the systems that we did before. It does everything I mentioned and a hundred things more. And GoTenant is, you know, the tenant onboarding assistant and full property management platform specially made for buy to let landlords and hmo landlords and that is a fundamental part of what we do tege now so we couldn't run our business without go tenant um it's on an app you can use it on your phone on your desktop on your um on your ipad you know it's it's cloud-based so Go tenant now is um, is becoming very very popular out there we are helping thousands of landlords now become systemized by using um, the go tenant platform so again yeah I mean you know if I look back at from where we've come from and now I'm the founder of you know what is go tenant as well is um, it's just awesome it's been an awesome ride you know it's been an awesome journey
0: I mean wow that's that's so cool and I guess that's how some of the best sort of Softwares come together, right? It's just one person trying to fix their problem, trying to solve it, automate it, make it easier, and then it it comes together in a in a great piece of software. So you know, everyone, go check out GoTenant. I haven't used it yet, but when I have a, a HMO and budlets, I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out for sure. So Rick, this uh, this brings us to the the quickfire round, which is the last section of the podcast. I think you should definitely come on another episode in future because. You've shared so much knowledge so far, and I know you've got plenty more, so mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we definitely need to do this again. But let's go into the the, uh, the kind of one-line answer quickfire round. So okay. what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made on your property journey?
1: Not starting sooner, um, not thinking I could do it and losing deals because of it, and not collaborating with joint venture partners earlier. <laughs>
0: Awesome. And what are the biggest, and this is kind of similar, but what are the biggest three challenges or stresses that you've had in in property?
1: Um, To begin with, uh, worry about whether or not I was capable. So mindset, I would say the first thing. Second thing, initially time, not having enough time to do what I wanted to do. Uh, And then thirdly, um, growing my business because I was doing it myself um, and I didn't have enough stuff around me. So I was in the business rather than working on it. Awesome.
0: And then finally, what are your top or your, your next three goals for the future? They can be personal, property, anything.
1: Okay. Um. I'm not sure I can do this in one one word answers. So number one is I want to pay it forward more. And we've got a massive housing issue across the country, which leads to homelessness. And regardless of how people end up on the streets, I'm not interested in how, Nobody should have to live in those conditions regardless. So I'm looking to do something, Tedge, with that. I don't know what yet um uh, i don't know how that's going to form but it's something that's very high in my priority number two is my disabled um, wheelchair football club team and um, we've just uh, literally last week actually won second place in the league we've come from nothing and over the years we've now got up to second place so i want to develop those young kids we've got five disabled kids now that play for us and then thirdly um i just want to um build up enough of a portfolio that i don't um, I have to worry or my kids don't have to worry about money when they get older so I'd like to leave a very large legacy for my children specifically my son because he's never going to be able to work so I'm going to keep pushing going to keep going there until we get to the point where I'm happy that if I'm on my deathbed I can say it's all been worth it and my kids are going to enjoy what we've created
0: Amazing. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the, the Tej Talks podcast. And if people want to get hold of you or join your Facebook group, what's the kind of best ways to, to get in contact with you?
1: Thank you, Tej. So uh, my Facebook group is called the HMO and Property Community Group. And the best way to get in touch with me is probably through that group. Um, or you can have my email, which is rick, R-I-C-K at newerapropertysolutions.co.uk. Do get a lot of emails though. They do sometimes tend to drop down in the ether, but um, Facebook is probably the best platform.
0: Amazing. Rick, thanks again. And uh, we definitely need to do this again in the future.
1: Thank you, Ted. It's been awesome.